To My Mother and Preface of Rookwood by William Harrison Ainsworth This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Paul Curran. Rookwood by William Harrison Ainsworth To My Mother when I inscribed this romance to you, my dear mother, on its first appearance, I was satisfied that, whatever reception it might meet with elsewhere, at your hands it would be sure of indulgence. Since then, the approbation your partiality would scarcely have withheld has been liberally accorded by the public, and I have the satisfaction of reflecting that in following the dictates of affection, which prompted me to select the dearest friend I had in the world as the subject of a dedication, I have not overstepped the limits of prudence. Nor, in connecting with your honoured name with this trifling production, involved you in a failure which, had it occurred, would have given you infinitely more concern than myself. After a lapse of three years, during which my little bark, fanned by pleasant and prosperous breezes, has sailed more than once securely into port, I again commit it to the waters, with more confidence than heretofore, and with a firmer reliance that, if it should be found after many days, it may prove a slight memorial of the warmest filial regard. Exposed to trials of no ordinary difficulty, and visited by domestic affliction of no common severity, you, my dear mother, have borne up against the ills of life with a fortitude and resignation which those who know you best can best appreciate but which none can so well understand, or so thoroughly appreciate, as myself. Suffering is the lot of all. Submission under the dispensation is permitted to few, and it is my fervent hope that my own children may emulate your virtues, if they are happily spared your sorrows. Preface during a visit to Chesterfield in the autumn of the year 1831, I first conceived the notion of writing this story. Wishing to describe, somewhat minutely, the trim gardens, the picturesque domains, the rook-haunted groves, the gloomy chambers and gloomier galleries of an ancient hall with which I was acquainted, I resolved to attempt a story in the bygone style of Mrs. Radcliffe, which had always inexpressible charms for me, substituting an old English squire, an old English manorial residence, and an old English highwayman, for the Italian Machese, the castle, and the brigand of the great mistress of romance. While revolving this subject, I happened one evening to enter the spacious cemetery attached to the church with the queer, twisted steeple, which, like the uplifted tail of the renowned dragon of Wantley, to whom houses and churches were as capons and turkeys, seems to menace the good town of Chesterfield with destruction. Here an incident occurred, on the opening of a vault, which it is needless to relate, but which supplied me with a hint for the commencement of my romance, as well as for the ballad entitled The Coffin. Upon this hint I immediately acted, and the earlier chapters of the book, together with the description of the ancestral mansion of the Rookwoods, were completed before I quitted Chesterfield. Another, a much larger portion of the work was written during a residence at Rottingdean in Sussex, in the latter part of 1833, and owes its inspiration to many delightful walks over the South Downs, 
Romance writing was pleasant occupation then. The ride to York was completed in one day and one night. This feat, for feat it was, being the composition of a hundred ordinary novel pages in less than twenty-four hours, was achieved at the Elms, a house I then occupied at Kilburn. Well do I remember the fever into which I was thrown during the time of composition. My pen literally scoured over the pages. So thoroughly did I identify myself with the flying highwayman that, once started, I found it impossible to halt. Animated by kindred enthusiasm, I cleared every obstacle in my path with as much facility as Turpin disposed of the impediments that beset his flight. In his company, I mounted the hillside, dashed through the bustling village, swept over the desolate heath, threaded the silent street, plunged into the eddying stream, and kept an onward course without pause, without hindrance, without fatigue. With him I shouted, sang, laughed, exulted, wept. Nor did I retire to rest, till, in imagination, I heard the bell of York Minster toll forth the knell of poor Black Bess. The supernatural occurrence, forming the groundwork of one of the ballads which I have made the harbinger of doom to the house of Rookwood, is ascribed, by popular superstition, to a family resident in Sussex, upon whose estate the fatal tree, a gigantic lime with mighty arms and huge girth of trunk, as described in the song, is still carefully preserved. Cookfield Place, to which this singular piece of timber is attached, is, I may state, for the benefit of the curious, the real Rookwood Hall. For I have not drawn upon imagination, but upon memory, in describing the seat and domains of that fated family. The general features of the venerable structure, several of its chambers, the old garden, and in particular the noble park, with its spreading prospects, its picturesque views of the hall, like bits of Mrs. Radcliffe, as the poet Shelley once observed the same scene, its deep glades, through which the deer come lightly tripping down, its uplands, slopes, brooks, brakes, coverts, and groves, are carefully delineated. The superstition of a fallen branch, affording a presage of approaching death, is not peculiar to the family I have mentioned. Many other old houses have been equally favoured. In fact, there is scarcely an ancient family in the kingdom without a boding sign. For instance, the Bretons of Brereton in Cheshire, were warned by the appearance of stocks of trees floating like the swollen bodies of long-drowned men upon the surface of a sombre lake, called Blackmere, from the inky colour of its waters, adjoining their residence. And numerous other examples might be given. The death presage of the Bretons is alluded to by Drayton in the Polyolbion. It has been well observed by Barry Cornwall that the songs which occur in dramas are more natural than those which proceed from the author in person. With equal force does the reasoning apply to the romance, which may be termed the drama of the closet. It would seem strange, on a first view, that an author should be more at home in an assumed character than his own, but experience shows the position to be correct. Conscious he is no longer individually associated with his work, the writer proceeds with all the freedom of irresponsibility. His idiosyncrasy is merged in that of the personages he represents. He thinks with their thoughts, sees with their eyes, speaks with their tongues. His strains are such as he himself, per se, would not, perhaps, could not, have originated. In this light, 
He may be said to bring to his subject not one mind, but several. He becomes not one poet, but many. For each actor in his drama has a share, and an important share, in the lyrical estro to which he gives birth. This it is which has imparted any verve, variety, or dramatic character they possess to the ballads contained in this production. Turpin I look upon as the real songster of Black Bess. To Jerry Juniper I am unquestionably indebted for a flash melody which, without his hint, would never have been written, while to the sexton I owe the solitary gleam of light I have been enabled to throw upon the horrors and mystery of the churchyard. As I have casually alluded to the flash song of Jerry Juniper, I may, perhaps, be allowed to make a few observations upon this branch of versification. It is somewhat curious with a dialect so racy, idiomatic, and plastic as our own cant, that its metrical capabilities should have been so little essayed. The French have numerous chansons d'argeot, ranging from the time of Charles Baudinier and Villon down to that of Vidocq and Victor Hugo, the last of whom has enlivened the horrors of his dernier jour d'une condamnée by a festival song of this class. The Spaniards possess a large collection of Romances de Germania by various authors, amongst whom Quevedo holds a distinguished place. We, on the contrary, have scarcely any slang songs of merit. With a race of depredators so melodious and convivial as our highwaymen, this is the more to be wondered at. Had they no bards amongst their bands? Was there no minstrel at hand to record their exploits? I can only call to mind one robber who was a poet, Delaney, and he was an Irishman. This barrenness, I have shown, is not attributable to the poverty of the soil, but to the want of due cultivation. Materials are at hand in abundance, but there have been few operators. Decker, Beaumont, and Fletcher, and Ben Johnson, have all dealt largely in this jargon, but not lyrically, and one of the earliest and best specimens of a canting song occurs in Brome's Jovial Crew, and in the adventures of Bamfylde Moor Carew there is a solitary ode, addressed by the mendicant's fraternity to their newly elected monarch, but it has little humour, and can scarcely be called a genuine canting song. This ode brings us down to our own time, to the effusions of the illustrious Pierce Egan, to Tom Moore's flights of fancy, to John Jackson's famous chant, On the high Toby Spice flash the muzzle, cited by Lord Byron in a note to Don Juan, and to the glorious Irish ballad, worth them all put together, entitled The Night Before Larry Was Stretched. This facetious performance is attributed to the late Dean Burroughs of Cork. It is worthy of note that almost all modern aspirants to the graces of the Musa Pedestris are Irishmen. Of all rhymesters of the road, however, Dean Burroughs is, as yet, most fully entitled to the laurel. Larry is quite the potato. And here, as the candidates are so few, and their pretensions so humble, I can't help putting in my claim for praise. I venture to affirm that I have done something more than has been accomplished by my predecessors or contemporaries, with the significant language under consideration. I have written a purely flash song, of which the great and peculiar merit consists in it being utterly incomprehensible to the uninformed understanding, while its meaning must be perfectly clear and perspicuous to the practised patterer of Romany or peddler's French. 
I have, moreover, been the first to introduce and naturalize amongst us a measure which, though common enough in the argotic minstrelsy of France, has been hitherto utterly unknown to our pedestrian poetry. Some years afterwards, the song alluded to, better known under the title of Nix My Dolly Pals, Fake Away, sprang into extraordinary popularity, being set to music by Rodwell and chanted by glorious Paul Bedford and clever little Mrs. Keeley. Before quitting the subject of these songs, I may mention that they probably would not have been written at all if one of the earliest of them, a chance experiment, had not excited the warm approbation of my friend Charles Ollier, author of the striking romance of Ferrer's. This induced me to prosecute the vein accidentally opened. Turpin was the hero of my boyhood. I had always a strange passion for highwaymen, and have listened by the hour to their exploits, as narrated by my father, and especially to those of Dauntless Dick, that chief minion of the moon. One of Turpin's adventures in particular, the writer Hoff Green, which took deep hold of my fancy, I have recorded in song. When a boy, I have often lingered by the side of the deep old road where this robbery was committed, to cast wistful glances into its mysterious windings, and when night deepened the shadows of the trees, I have urged my horse on his journey from a vague apprehension of a visit from the ghostly highwayman. And then there was the Bolin, with its shelvy banks, which Turpin cleared at a bound, the broad meadows over which he winged his flight, the pleasant bowling green of the pleasant old inn at Hoff, where he produced his watch to the Cheshire squires, with whom he was upon terms of intimacy, all brought something of the gallant robber to mind. No wonder, in after years, in selecting a highwayman for the character in a tale, I should choose my old favourite, Dick Turpin. In reference to two of the characters here introduced, and drawn from living personages living at the time the tale was written, it may be mentioned that poor Jerry Juniper met his death from an accident at Chichester, while he was proceeding to Goodwood Races, and that the Knight of Malta, Mr. Tom, a brewer of Truro, the self-styled Sir William Courtney, who played the strange tricks at Canterbury chronicled in a song given in these pages, after his release from Banning Heath Asylum, was shot through the head while leading a mob of riotous Kentish yeomen, whom he had persuaded that he was the Messiah. If the design of romance be, what it has been held, the exposition of a useful truth by means of an interesting story, I fear I have but imperfectly fulfilled the office imposed upon me, having, as I will freely confess, throughout, an eye rather to the reader's amusement than his edification. One wholesome moral, however, may, I trust, be gathered from the perusal of this tale, namely that, without due governance of the passions, high aspirations, and generous emotions will little avail their possessor. The impersonations of the tempter, the tempted, and the better influence may be respectively discovered by those who care to cull the honey from the flower in the sexton, in Luke, and in Sibyl. The chief object I had in view in making the present essay was to see how far the infusion of a warmer and more genial current into the veins of old romance would succeed in reviving her fluttering and feeble pulses. The attempt has succeeded beyond my most sanguine expectation. Romance if I am not mistaken, is destined shortly to undergo an important change, modified by the German and French writers, by Hoffman 
Tiek, Hugo, Dumas, Balzac, and Paul Lacroix, Le Bibliophile Jacob, the structure commenced in our own land by Horace Walpole, Monk Lewis, Mrs. Radcliffe, and Maturin, but left imperfect and inharmonious. It requires, now that the rubbish which choked up its approach is removed, only the hand of the skilful architect to its entire renovation and perfection. And now, having said my say, I must bid you, worthy reader, farewell, beseeching you, in the words of old Rabelais, to interpret all my sayings and doings in the perfectest sense. Reverence the cheese-like brain that feeds you with all these jolly maggots, and do what lies in you to keep me always merry. Be frolic now, my lads. Cheer up your hearts, and joyfully read the rest, with all the ease of your body and comfort of your reins. Kensal Manor House, December 15th, 1849 End of Preface